So many of us this week were all eyes were tuned to the Queen's funeral. Did any of you see any of the footage of the Queen's funeral? All right, a few of you did. I wanted to, but then I remembered at like 7.30 a.m. that, oh, it started at 6 a.m., so I missed it. But it's on YouTube. We can all watch it. I think the, the Queen's funeral is, is really a wonderful event, one of the most watched live uh, TV events, right, in the history of television. And so in that, uh, when all eyes were on TVs all around the world, what did they hear? But the public reading of Scripture and the promise that Christians have of hope of heaven, what a wonderful event that everybody tuned in to watch this week. So England was on my mind. Uh, I do a little research. England has been around since 927. Can you believe that? 927 AD. Now there's been name changes, and it's Great Britain, and there's all kinds of unique history to England. But since 927, this kingdom of England has been on uh, the earth. And a lot of people's identities are wrapped up in the kingdom of England. We saw that this week, right? Like some real strong attachment uh, to the lineage of, of kings and queens. And it got me thinking, you know, we do, it's wonderful and a blessing from God when we can take pride in the kingdom or the nation of our citizenship. That's a wonderful blessing from God. We can do that as well as citizens of America, right? We can, there's much that we can be proud of. We look at our history and we're like, we're an infant compared to England. But uh, nevertheless, we have things we can be proud of as well. And yet watching all the footage and just having the TV on reminds you that we live in a unique time in which we're really struggling as people to understand, well, how much pride should I have or how much pride am I allowed to have in my nation or in my kingdom? Because the queen and the kingdom of England have done some great things, but uh, the queen and the kingdom of England have also done some things that nobody should be proud of. And the same for our nation. America's done some great things, but America's also done some things that we shouldn't be proud of. So we're, we're sort of wrestling as a people like, well, how much pride should I have in my kingdom or in my nation? And how much shouldn't I have? And, and right, we are all aware of this tension that's going on in people and conversations and water coolers around us. And I think um, God's word speaks to it. I think specifically Daniel speaks to it. So Daniel's a book in the Old Testament that tells the story of this wonderful man, prophet of God. And I think he can help us appreciate this moment we're living in and how we should think about the kingdoms of the world and even the nation in which we live in. So let me set the stage for us. It's 605 BC, 605 years before Jesus is born. And the setting is the same. It's, it's the Middle East. Daniel is living in the kingdom of Judah, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, when in comes the invading armies of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire. And they invade Jerusalem. They take Daniel and his friends, and they take him to live in captivity in Babylon, a kingdom that does not love and respect God at all. And so we look at Daniel chapter 1, and we say, well, how will Daniel live as a prisoner of war with his deep faith in God, but now forced to live in a kingdom that he does not agree with its values and rules and authorities. And what we saw in Daniel chapter one is that Daniel modeled for us this beautiful respect and kindness that he exhibited for the king and for the kingdom. He was a good citizen, but he did have a line he wouldn't cross. He wouldn't dishonor God. He wouldn't uh, contaminate himself 
with the evil of the palace. And for him specifically in Daniel chapter 1, it was the king's food and drink. So we watched Daniel walk through that, and, and we could learn and see, like, okay, so that's how Daniel lived his life as a citizen of the kingdom of Judah, but as an exile living in the kingdom of Babylon. And what I want us to see this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 2 is how can we live as a citizen of the kingdom of God right here in the midst of the kingdoms of this world? And what I want us to see from Daniel chapter 2 is that our God, Daniel's God, is greater than any kingdom, any nation, any empire. That's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 2. There's no comparison to the kingdom of God to any other kingdom or nation or empire that has ever existed. So let's read the story of Daniel chapter 2 together. So we've got it on the screens for you. It's also in the Bibles in your pews. It's also on your phones. So if something of this is intriguing, you can, you can check it out for yourself. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. I don't really remember dreams. Does anybody in here remember their dream from last night? Anybody? Okay, Patty. I, note to self, avoid conversations with people whose hands is up. There's... Nothing I like more than hearing about your weird dream. <laughs> um, we're all made differently with different levels of patience and interest. In the world we live, today, we live today, a lot of people have great interest in dreams. What was it scientifically? Like, what's going on? What's firing in your brain? What did you eat for dinner last night? What is, like, on your psyche, right? Um, I don't necessarily that interested in all those topics. So when my kids wake up in the morning and they say, I had a dream last night, Dad. Do you want to hear it? I'm like, yeah. Um, it's even better, though, when they wake up in the middle of the night to tell you they had a bad dream. And then you're like, thank you for waking me up and telling me that. And thank you for standing there beside my bedside watching me sleep until I finally woke up and saw you. That was creepy. All right, Daniel has a certain special set of gifts given to him from God. We learn that in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, which says that Daniel had been given the gift of understanding all visions and dreams. The gift understanding in all visions and dreams. So the stage is set for a really interesting story here. Daniel 1, we learn, oh, Daniel has a special gift from God to understand dreams. Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream. Okay, so he gathers together all the special dream tellers. And then in verse 4, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Well, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. All right. Next time you complain about a boss or a politician... It's not as bad as having King Nebuchadnezzar as your boss. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from, the, from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. 
The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods, and they don't dwell with flesh. But what if there was a God who dwelt with flesh? What if there was a God in heaven who descended from heaven down to earth and took on human flesh and was born in the likeness of men? All of a sudden, that would be a God worth paying attention to, wouldn't it? But we won't get too far ahead of ourselves. But it is true, only the gods and only those who dwell with flesh. Because of this answer, though, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The kingdom of Babylon, if you read about it in history books, you'll learn that they made great advancements in language and mathematics and physics and astronomy. Archaeologists will talk about their architecture You may have even heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world built by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. And the history books will rave, and I'm sure the kingdom of Babylon made a great impact on the world in many positive ways. However, know this, the kingdom of Babylon was marked by fear, spiritual darkness, and brutality. The king is driven and motivated by fear. He is afraid. He is afraid of this dream, and he's probably afraid that he just had a dream about a statue falling, and maybe the statue's him, and maybe his reign is coming to an end, and he's afraid. And then fear motivates his magicians and sorcerers and enchanters. It's a place of spiritual darkness. And I think King Nebuchadnezzar knows it's a place of spiritual darkness, and that's why he's saying to these people, like, I need some light. You all have lied to me in the past. You don't really know. You can't do anything supernatural, so here's what's going to happen. You're not just going to come up with something after I tell you the dream. You're going to tell me the dream. Something supernatural is going to have to happen here. And they say they can't do it because it's a place of spiritual darkness, not light. And it's a place marked with brutality. You'd be torn limb from limb. Oh, you want to compromise? Here's the compromise. Kill them all. Fear, spiritual darkness, brutality. Let's just compare and contrast the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Babylon for a second. Our king in the kingdom of God, you know what he says through the voice of the prophet Isaiah? He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you hear the difference between the king of Babylon and the king of the kingdom of God? Our king says, fear not, I am with you. Our kingdom is not one marked with darkness. Our kingdom is one marked with light. Again, the prophet Isaiah says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And for those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Jesus is born, and what does Jesus say as he walks on the earth? He says, I am the light of the world. And what are you and I, if not citizens of the kingdom of light, called to go out into the darkness and be lights for Jesus? It is the opposite, the kingdom of God from the kingdom of Babylon. It is not fear. It is not darkness. 
and it is not brutality. You look at Psalm 145, verse 8, our king is described this way, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Our king is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That would be the exact opposite of King Nebuchadnezzar. So there's a, there's a compare and contrast for the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of God. Let's just take a second, though, to compare the kingdom of America. Because nothing sells like fear. Certainly feels like people are afraid as I talk to people out in our world. Fear is a strong motivator for us. I don't know about you, but it feels like a place of darkness. Feels to me like there's a lot of people that have moments like King Nebuchadnezzar and they call people together and they say, can someone tell me what this means? Please, someone tell me what this means. My spirit is troubled and I would like for someone to just tell me what this means. I'll give our country some props though. It's true, America is not a brutal nation compared to other nations on the history of the face of the earth, right? We have done a good job as a, as a nation uh, of putting the brutality on a decrease. Just rewind the clock a thousand years and compare America today to some other kingdom a thousand years ago and you'll see like we have done a good job of reducing brutality. But as we're patting ourselves on the back, let's also not forget the fact that in 2019, New York senators gave a standing ovation whenever a law was passed for abortions to be legalized all the way up until birth. A standing ovation. And so as much as progress as we've made on the brutality, we are still a brutal nation marked by fear and it's a dark place. So which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Which kingdom do you want to put your identity in? Which kingdom do you want to put your security in? Which kingdom do you want to like, most deeply be rooted to and belong to? For me, the answer is the kingdom of God. That's where I want my citizenship. That's where I want my identity. That's where I want to belong. So the decree went out from the king, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So this section of the story is a wonderful, wonderful resource for us. You should just bookmark it and return to this little passage of Scripture whenever a crisis hits, because what Daniel has just given us is a great toolkit on how to respond to a crisis. So walk with me through the verses I just read. In verse 14, they knock on Daniel's door and say, Hey, Daniel, I'm here to kill you. It's a decree from the king. And so how does Daniel respond to the crisis? Well, in verse 14, he replies with prudence and discretion. Those aren't words we use every day. He responds with wisdom, tact, discernment. He's under control. He contemplates how to respond. He doesn't just say the first thing that pops into his head, does he? No, he, he exercises wisdom and discernment. He is quick to listen and slow to speak. Crises come into our life in all different shapes and sizes and never when we want them to. There's a family crisis, a work crisis, a financial crisis, a health crisis. But whenever that crisis knocks on your door and says, I am here to destroy you, 
Daniel's step one is, okay, I'm going to pause. I'm going to try and have wisdom and discernment before I take my first step. But his first step is to ask questions. In verse 15, Daniel says, okay, question. Why is this so urgent? So we can learn from that. Like step one is like ask a question, right? Well, you don't know what you don't know. And so if you find yourself in the midst of your crisis in, in the doctor's office, ask a question. If your crisis puts you in a principal's office, ask a question. If it puts you in your boss's office, ask a question. If it puts you in your marriage counselor's office, ask a question, right? Take some time, pause, be, wi- be wise, and then ask a good question. And then Daniel says in verse 16, once he listens, here's the answer to the question. He says, may I have some time? He goes before the king and he asks for time so that he can give the interpretation of the dream. So ask for time. Now maybe your crisis won't allow it, but maybe your crisis, there's a space in which you can go and say, may I please have time? I need time to heal. I need time to collect my thoughts. I need, my, I need time to gather resources, but may I please have time? That's a very practical, helpful process. Reply, respond with prudence and discretion. Ask questions, request time, and then in verse 17, ask for help. Then he goes home and he finds his friends and he asks his friends to help him. And I don't know about you, but when I respond to a crisis, I'm often impulsive and I need to be reminded, take your time, ask questions, and ask for help. I don't like to ask for help either. Every crisis that knocks on our doors does come in at different levels, and maybe, maybe it comes in at a level where you need to be quick, and, and I understand every crisis is different, but if you can ask some friends for help, it might really be very helpful, and that's what Daniel does. And then the last step is the one that obviously is most important, and that is prayer. In verse 18, he invites his friends to pray with him. Please pray. Daniel has put himself out on a limb He has stood before the most powerful man in the world and said, yes, okay, within that amount of time, I will come back to you and tell you something that I don't know, which is your dream. It is an impossible situation. And when we are in impossible situations, the best thing we can do is gather our friends together and pray, isn't it? Like I said, on Thursday, I was in Children's Hospital with Eric and Helge, and there in the bed next to them lay sweet Julia, one and a half, and they just learned that she has this brain tumor. And I said, what can we do to help? And Eric and Helge said, all you can do is pray. That's all we can do. We need, we need people to pray. And so that's what we're doing, isn't it? We're praying. We are helping our friend by going before the king of the universe and asking for his help. We pray. And, and Eric and Helge are doing a great job responding to the crisis. As I talked with them in their hospital room, they, they were in grief, and yet they had asked good questions. They understood the situation, and they had asked for help. And they are being great parents to Julia. You might say the last step is prayer, but you also might say the last step in how to respond to a crisis is to praise God. Praise God regardless of the outcome. In Daniel's story, the outcome is the revealing of the dream. And we have his song of praise recorded for us in verses 19 and following. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven... Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. 
To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. It's a beautiful song of praise. He gives God all the credits. My favorite line in that little song is is this one. He says, he knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I like that statement for what it says and, and what it doesn't say. So it says that God knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. So what you'll notice as you walk through this life of faith is God doesn't just put a spotlight on the deep, dark, scary woods. Now Psalm 119 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So God seems to give us just enough light sometimes to take the next step. He doesn't necessarily light up all the dark woods. You know, it's kind of spooky in the woods at night, isn't it? But it's a comfort to know that God knows what's in the darkness. He may not tell me what's there. There's lots of things he doesn't tell me that I wish he would. I'm like 99.999% sure he doesn't tell winning lottery numbers. There's lots of things he won't tell me that are in the darkness. But what he does reveal to me is the next step I can take because the light dwells with him and I'm going to walk with him through the darkness. And that's what Daniel is celebrating. We celebrate that with him. In verse 24, it continues. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought to Daniel, brought Daniel in before the king, and in haste, and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered, now listen to Daniel's answer. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know with the thoughts of your own mind. You see, Daniel gives all the credit to God. And he says, I didn't do it. I don't know. God, God gave it to me. But what I'm telling you, Nebuchadnezzar, is your dream is a vision of the future. Because there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Oftentimes, I like to emphasize the fact that we live in the midst of the mystery and God doesn't reveal all mysteries, and that's true. But you know what we should really celebrate? What Daniel just said here is true. We serve a God who does reveal mysteries because you want to know some of the mysteries that haunt the human mind? Some of those mysteries are who can I trust and how can I find security in this ever-changing world? Here's a mystery that haunts us. Who am I and how can I find my identity? Who wants me and where do I belong? Why am I here and what's my purpose? These are the mysteries that keep us up at night and we serve a God who reveals mysteries who tells us, you think it's a mystery who you are. You're my child. I created you and I love you and I sent my son down to die for you so that if you put your faith and trust in him, then you can become a part of my family and you can find your identity from me and you can belong to me and I will give you a purpose in your life. 
He is a God who reveals mysteries. And here's the mystery he revealed to Daniel. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, and the image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces." And they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So let me review what I just read. His vision in his dream is this. There's a statue. The head is gold. The arms and the chest are silver. This section is bronze, and then the feet are iron and clay. And then a stone that's not cut by any human hand comes and smashes into the feet. The statue crumbles, turns to fine dust, and blows away, and not a bit of it is left to be seen. That stone, though, becomes a great mountain that spreads across the whole earth. So the king should be happy. He's like, that's exactly what I dreamed. Well, what does it mean? This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. You know what that's called? That's like a really spiritual backhanded compliment. (laughs) You are the head of gold. You are the mighty, beautiful head of gold. Everything you have is given to you by God. Everything that you reign, all the kingdom, all the power, all the might that you have is a gift from God. But you're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze that shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, that becomes, um, I'm going to skip over a few of those verses there, the legs and the feet are of iron and clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The statue, the head, is Babylon. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. And the other pieces are other nations that are going to invade So if you're King Nebuchadnezzar, listening to the interpretation of the dream, what do you want to know? You want to know, well, who is silver? Who is going to conquer me? I want to know who's silver. Who's the arms and the chest? Tell me, Daniel, who's silver? But that isn't written in the text. Who the different nations are is not in the text. Because the point of the story, the point of the dream, isn't who silver and bronze and iron are. The point of the dream is, I want to be part of that stone kingdom. Because the silver is going to fail and the bronze is going to fail and the, and the iron and the clay are going to fail. Tell me more about the stone kingdom because I want to latch onto that because it was small and it wasn't made by any human hand. But it becomes a mountain and it spreads out over the whole earth. That kingdom of God is the kingdom that I want to be a part of. The kingdom of God is more powerful than all the other kingdoms. All the other kingdoms of the world will be forgotten. Babylon will be forgotten. Rome, America, all of them. The kingdom of God is greater than all of them. And that is the point of the dream. But to satisfy our curiosity, I can tell you that the kingdom of Babylon, you just look up a history book, is conquered by the Medo-Persians. 
the arms and the shoulders. The Greeks then conquer the Medo-Persians, the thighs, and then the Romans, the feet and the legs, they come in. And isn't that when Jesus was born, when the Romans were ruling, when the stone comes in and crushes the legs and the feet? During the Roman Empire, that little stone was born in Bethlehem, and that stone grows up, and he preaches this. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. You and I, hopefully, are citizens of the kingdom of God, and that kingdom lasts forever. And if you've noticed in world history, ever since 2,000 years ago when that stone broke in, it's like it's been spreading around the world. And so not every people group and not every nation has heard it yet, but that mountain is spreading around the world. And its embassies of the kingdom of God are spread out around the world, and you're sitting in one. It's called the church, and we gather together as citizens of the kingdom of God to celebrate not the kingdom of America, but to celebrate the kingdom of God and recognize that our citizenship, our identity, our purpose, our belonging is wrapped up in our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And we celebrate him through our songs, through our baptisms, through everything that we say and do. Now we'll finish the story. The king, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of an incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made great gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon and prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So the story finishes very well for Daniel. He continues to advance, and next week we'll look at chapter 3 and what happens. But as we wrap up this week, listen to this wonderful quote. When tyrants suffer from bad dreams, God is at work. A man named Walter Luthi said that. There was a man named Maurice Graham. He lived in Kuwait City. The year is 1990, and it's August 2nd. Saddam Hussein has just ordered the invasion of Kuwait. Maybe some of you remember that. So it's 1990, and in come the soldiers into Maurice Graham's apartment. Maurice Graham is a Southern Baptist missionary. He and his family are living in Kuwait City. The soldiers come in and they do bad things to his family, but then the soldiers leave. Maurice gathers together his family and they get in the car and they drive to the embassy. Once they're in the embassy, however, though, they're in the midst of a hostage situation. They and 150 other people are held hostage in the embassy of Kuwait. They're praying and they're praying and they're asking God for his help and eventually the, the hostage negotiations work out and they come and take his family back to America, but Maurice stays. He continues his time living as a hostage within the embassy, but his family's back in America asking for help, asking for the church to pray for the release of the hostages. And you know what happens? U.S. intelligence learns that Saddam Hussein begins being plagued by strange dreams. And then one day, three months after Maurice came to the embassy, he's handed a piece of paper which reads this. Last night, Saddam Hussein had a dream. God troubled his spirit, and he is going to release all the hostages. You want to know why? Because we serve the same God. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is a great God, and he works miracles, and he answers prayers. 